Well, Memorial Day weekend uh, signals the unofficial start of summer, just four weeks away, and it's when the rhythm of life changes for many of us. Our kids are out of school, or we are out of school. Uh, we may take a vacation, work in the garden, you know, do a little fishing, a little camping. We enjoy summer evenings uh, on the deck or the patio after we barbecue. Maybe we catch lightning bugs with our grandchildren. Go to Emos for a Dairy Queen uh, ice cream cone. We may stop at Lou's for a, a glass of root beer. Maybe even take in a Chiefs game here in Peoria. Yeah. In summer, things are just different in the Midwest. And so today we are continuing our series of messages that we've titled Preparing for a Summer of Fun. We're taking a look at everyday outreach for ordinary people. And so far we've begun to unpack some of our preconceptions about evangelism. Uh, We've learned that uh, Jesus is sending us out into the harvest field of our world rather than asking the world to come into the church. Last week we looked very closely at Jesus' model uh, in an attempt to do what he did. We saw that he loved people because they all matter to God, that the Holy Spirit is at work in everyone, and he saw that and then urged and prodded people to take the next step on their spiritual journey. And then we saw that he also touched them with visible, tangible expressions of God's love and mercy and power. And today we're going to continue to redefine evangelism as cultivating friendships, and then next week we're going to conclude as we we look more closely at what it means to demonstrate God's love uh, in in tangible expressions uh, of humble kindness and, and generosity and service with no strings attached. So let's pray together before we look to God's Word. Uh, Father, we're grateful for the beauty and the power of a brand new day. Uh, we love spring because it speaks of new life when when in the Midwest, things come back to life. It speaks of hope and renewal and, and joy and your gracious providence over all of life that you sustain us. And we're grateful and humbled. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to be here today. And it's our prayer that you would inspire us to worship, that you would equip us in our, in our daily life to minister to those around us, Lord, that you would uh, deepen our relationships with one another and that you would inform and Communicate, Lord, those that, that don't yet know you and move them to take the next step on their journey with you. Put power on your word to our lives in your name. Amen. I was raised by authentic Christian parents. My brothers and sisters and, and I went to Sunday school every week, went to vacation Bible school every summer. Uh, we hung out with kids from the church youth group, and uh, we, we did a potluck every month with other families from the church. And while I would have told you uh, that, that these things deeply influenced me and that I believed Christianity was historically true, uh, nevertheless, I was not personally influenced to become a Christian until I went to the University of Illinois in the fall of 1974, back when slide rules and letter writing and eight tracks were vogue. I lived in 413 Babcock Hall, Pennsylvania Avenue Residence Halls, and my roommate was a distant cousin named Bob. I, I didn't know him very well because we weren't really very close friends during, during high school. Bob was a devout Christian. I just thought he was a touch weird. Bob wouldn't party. He became irritated when I tried to bring my friends home to the dorm room. He was in love with a gal named Myrna from uh, his hometown, Peoria, whom he later married. And he just 
played his guitar and sang love songs to Jesus all the time. Drove me crazy. But despite how different we were, Bob and I became really great friends. And over the course of those months in the dorm room, we engaged in very lengthy and frequent discussions about the issues of ultimate concern in life. And what Bob probably does not even know yet to this day is that our friendship played a vital key role in my decision to fully surrender my life to Jesus on the night of October 29th, 1974. Now, if I were to ask those of you who identify yourselves as followers of Jesus, who or what was responsible for your coming to faith in Christ and joining the church, your responses would probably stack up kind of like reflected in my life. One to two percent of you would say a special need. Two to three percent would say you walked into a church. Five to six percent would say the influence of a pastor. Four to five percent would identify a Sunday school or a particular church program. One half of a percent may say an evangelistic crusade in person or in tele- on television. But 75 to 90 percent of you would indicate a friend or a relative. Both the Bible and church history uh, show that the greatest majority of people who, who come to Christ are brought by ordinary people who make friends, take a genuine interest in their lives, uh, share and serve uh, their life with them in meaningful ways, and then ultimately help them encounter Christ in, and have a living relationship with Him. And so everyday outreach for ordinary people is really about learning to love others without discrimination, without judgment, developing a relationship with them, and then listening to the Holy Spirit to both say and do the right thing at the right time in the right way with the right motive. And in so doing, through good conversations and good deeds, as well as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, being privileged to influence uh, their direction and momentum towards Jesus and perhaps be privileged to then pray with them, as God may enable us. Now, last week we saw in particular in Jesus' model the love factor, all people matter to God, the journey factor, all people are on a journey of relationship with Him, and kingdom factor, that Jesus touched people with concrete positive expressions of God's love. And so I would like to now add to those three factors what today I'm going to call the friendship factor in everyday evangelism for ordinary people. So in light of the friendship factor, I'm going to suggest this morning four action steps as all of us in the Midwest prepare for a summer of fun, okay? First, ask the Holy Spirit to continually cultivate our heart for people. Now, one of the beautiful things about living in the Midwest uh, in the spring is that it's planting time. Whether you enjoy vegetable gardening or planting with annuals and perennials because of the rich color and texture that they add to the landscape, or if you're a farmer, the planting of row crops. And in spring, one of the first responsibilities of the planter is to cultivate the soil, right? We get out the rototiller from the garden shed, we, we sharpen and polish and oil up our shovel, and uh, we actually turn the soil over, breaking up the hard crust that's developed in the winter months. 
So in a similar manner, as we desire to look more and more like Jesus did in reaching people, you know, being that fountain that we've talked about that splashes the love and life and power of God's kingdom to others, his love and his truth and his mercy and his power, if, as we desire to be more and more like him, being that fountain, then it's going to be important to ask continually that the Holy Spirit turn over the soil of our heart so it doesn't get crusty, you know, self-absorbed, selfish, uninterested in the lives of those around us, or even judgmental of others as maybe unworthy or unreceptive and responsive to the power of God. Now, last week or several weeks ago, we started in looking at what we call the Great Commission, how Jesus in his final words authorized, empowered, and promised us his very presence as he sent us to go and make disciples, like we just sang. We're authorized, we're empowered, and Jesus promises us his very presence as we go into all the world and share the gospel. But it's a helpful perspective to remember that on an earlier occasion, in response to a question by a a Jewish religious teacher who was asking Jesus which of the commands of God is most important, that Jesus replied with what has since been called the great command. And if you have a Bible, you're going to want to open to Matthew chapter 22, where we're going to read the great command. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles at Guest Central. You can pick one up at any time during the service. It's our free gift to you, or you can follow along on the screen. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. So Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. So Jesus was saying that the most important thing is to love God and love people, period. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing, right? At the picture painted of the four Gospels, we see that Jesus loved God his Father and was moved with compassion for people. And so Jesus, in both his teaching and his model, the lifestyle, the ministry, he was showing us that the path of the Great Commission runs through the door of the Great Command. The path of the Great Commission runs through the door of the Great Command. We don't get to the go-and-make-disciples part until first engaging in the love-God-love-people part. Loving people like Jesus did is where fulfilling the Great Commission actually starts. The Great Command followed by the Great Commission. So this means, in my mind, that everyday outreach for ordinary people commences first as we ask God to soften our heart, both for him and for people. Love God, love people. Now, I don't know about you, but there are days where I just don't feel like I have the capacity or the desire to love God, to love myself, or to love people, period. Now, numbers of you are smiling, so I, I see that. take that as an amen. You can shout it out, by the way. And so I have to ask the Holy Spirit regularly to fill me, to control me, 
Turn over the crusty soil of my heart and fill me with love once again for him and for his people. And then I can actually expect that he'll answer that prayer, and you can too, because it's fully aligned with the will of God. The Apostle Paul declares in Romans 5, verse 5, that it is the Holy Spirit that floods our hearts with God's love. You see, maybe you've tried, I've tried. We can't muster up love for people in our heart by sheer willpower and determination, gritting our teeth and deciding we, like Nike, are just going to do it. It doesn't work, does it? No. You can't draw water out of the well if it's dry. You, you can't grow seed if the heart's crusty, so the soil of the heart is crusty. We need Him to cultivate our hearts in love for Him and love for others. See, it's, are we reaching out because we want to or because we have to? Is it desire or obligation? So first things first, ask the Holy Spirit to continually cultivate our heart for him and for people. Second action step, prioritize building relationships with unchurched people. Now let's look briefly at a snapshot that's provided for us by the Apostle John in his letter, John's Gospel, chapter 1. And uh, in verses 35 to 39, the, the, the Apostle records the story of the calling of Christ's first two disciples, the Apostle's uh, Andrew and John, the first two disciples. And then we're going to pick up the story in verse 40. John is actually writing it. Uh, and he says in verse 40 of John 1, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name's Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name's Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see for yourself, Philip replied. So did you, did you catch in the text that the first thing that Andrew did was go and find his brother Simon and tell him that they'd found the Messiah. And then he brought him to meet Jesus. The very first thing that Philip did was run to find his friend Nathaniel and brought him to see Jesus for himself as well. Now, neither Philip nor Andrew had received any training in evangelism. There was no such thing as the Great Commission yet. Uh, they, they had not taken any courses, been to any weekend seminars, not heard of the evangelism explosion or the Roman road. Uh, they had not been uh, subjected to their pastors berating that they ought to be out winning the lost or going door to door or anything. They just did what comes naturally. They connected with the person close to them, their friend. Now, Peter happened to be Andrew's brother. They also were in business, the fishing business together as well. And from what we understand, Nathaniel was a friend of Philip's. But it wasn't about evangelism. It was about friendship. 
That's what we've been saying in preparing for a summer of fun, that we should reconsider evangelism, that outreach should be more about relationships and friendship and less about trying to convert somebody to Christianity. We are first called to love the great command, love God and love others. And we don't love with an ultimate purpose in mind, as if the only purpose to love is converting someone to Christianity. You see, if they never convert, we're still called to love, period. That's our calling. We don't abandon the friendship if we try to seal the deal and they're done. And they say, no, we are called to love, love God and love others, period. Now, it is true that because we love, that ultimately we have a desire at some point to share with our friends the real life that we've discovered in Jesus, his forgiveness, his freedom, restoration, and healing, joy, and peace, the real life that we've discovered. And we would never deny that we deeply desire this for other people. But at the same time, can't we see in some ways how Trying to convert someone is at first inconsistent with the call to love and become friends. Yeah, people have a tendency to feel that we see ourselves as kind of the privileged or the exclusive, uh, uh, you know, elite holders of this information that they desperately need to know and must totally agree with. They feel that, you know, we want to maybe impose our views, our view of truth on them, or that maybe we feel somehow that we're the expert, the the having arrived perfect people, or that our relationships could be perceived as, as having one defining goal, that's to convert them and win them to our team or our side. Have any of you encountered those kinds of dynamics? Our friends could maybe end up feeling that they are our evangelism project. And this seems, in my mind, to work against the grain of genuinely loving others and having friends. I want to suggest that what's happening in the text in John 1 is the natural reflex of a healthy, good relationship. That is to say, one person who found God told another person, their friend, a close friend, about that in a way that wasn't weird or manipulative, or hyped up. It was natural. And so we want to live a natural, relaxed, non-hyped, not cranked up on sugar sticks kind of life with Jesus at the center of it all and, and help others to do it in the same way. And so in everyday outreach for ordinary people, uh, We want to become good friends with people. And then through good deeds and good conversations and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, hopefully influence the direction and momentum of their lives toward better living and ultimately towards Christ as well. We want to do the right thing in the right way for the right reason in the right manner as the Holy Spirit prompts us, saying and doing as we're prompted by Him. But no formulas, no templates, no memorized speeches, no four-point action plans in a natural, relaxed rhythm of friendship, our life, touching their lives. And when we do, when we live this way, we build bridges of friendship and trust that we may perhaps later be able to cross and share our perspective, our vision, our values, our experience 
invite them to church, and maybe even be privileged to invite them to Christ. We earn the right to be heard through friendship. Now, I fully understand that the inertia of many of us who are Christians pushes us towards exclusivity from unchurched people. We spend most of our time with other Christians. Uh, We attend small groups. We go to Bible studies. We attend training events at at our church with other members of our church. We begin to lose interest in the things that our unchurched friends do. And we begin to lose our connections with genuinely unconnected, uh, unchurched people. I, re- I remember well um, a staff meeting in our former church in February of 1991 when we were just discovering these powerful insights that I'm sharing with you today. There were about 11 or 12 of us, full-time pastors and spouses, in, in that conference room. We sat there and attempted to name the unchurched people with whom we had a genuine friendship. Not one of us could identify a single unchurched friend in that whole room. And uh, we were the pastors of the church. Sadly, it was very sobering, but subsequently a very life-changing experience. The point is... If people come to Christ primarily, 75 to 90%, through the influence of a close friend or relative, then we've got to be intentional about building relationships with unchurched people. Um, as we do, we'll remember that conversion to Christ is, is not usually instantaneous. So to illustrate, perhaps some of you have actually heard of what's called the Ingalls Scale. It was developed by an author, James Engel, in his 1975 book, What's Gone Wrong with the Harvest. And it's simply a way of representing uh, the journey that people take from no knowledge of God all the way through spiritual maturity. And it illustrates the process of conversion by benchmarking 14 different stages that people go through. Stages like, at the, at the far end, unawareness of a supreme being, no knowledge of God to initial awareness of the gospel, to awareness of the fundamentals of the gospel, all the way up to the decision to act, the praying a prayer of repentance and faith, and experiencing regeneration or conversion or getting saved or born again, whatever language and metaphor you want to use. And then it continues with, with, with a post-decision evaluation and, and, and folding into the body of Christ and all the way at the, at the far end of the spectrum of maturity in, in faith. 14 stages. And this scale, I reference it merely to illustrate that uh, people are at many different places on the journey of relationship with Christ, and they actually need hundreds of touches of the love of God to propel them from, from section to section, stage to stage. They don't necessarily need more information. What they need is the experience of the love and mercy and and power of God. And this can happen as we actually build genuine relationships with people and then as we bathe those relationships with prayer. Over the last years, I've, I've encouraged every member of the Vineyard family to specifically pray for their five friends. Many of us have come through our 40-day adventure where for for many of us it was maybe a brand-new experience. 
identifying five of your friends that perhaps, as far as you know, no one else is actually praying for them, praying for, for God to break into their lives, for God to break, uh, break through and reveal himself, for, for his kingdom to come to them and their family, uh, for, for them to be open to Christ, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or other needs, special needs that they or, or their family constellation might have. And we've been intentionally praying, marinating those friendships with our our prayers. Maybe some of you even sitting here today were on someone else's five friends list. You didn't know it at the time, but they were praying for you. The friend or relative that was more instrumental than anyone else in your life in bringing you to faith in Christ was no doubt praying. They might not have called you their, their five friend list. That's just lingo that, you know, gives us a label. But maybe the fact that you're right here today is, is proof that praying for five friends actually works. Now, quite honestly, one of the biggest challenges that uh, I have in preparing for a summer of fun is that neither Tina nor I have very significant relationships with unchurched people here yet. Uh, we moved here just one year ago today, our one-year anniversary. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the process of moving and adjusting and, and uh, getting, you know, all new grocery stores and doctor's offices and building this facility, we've met a lot of people and we've told our story dozens and dozens of times. But I would say that we still haven't made many unchurched friends yet. Tina's beginning to connect with people at CAT, and and uh, we're meeting more people intentionally. Uh, just last night our, on our neighborhood walk, we, we, we could have just walked past the guy, but we stopped and talked to him. It was the guy that sold uh, the original desktop computer to us in, in 1981 in Champaign. He was the sales guy. Mike Korn. I'm like, holy cow, can you believe that? This is not like coincidence that we met. But we don't have many unchurched friends yet. But our sense, our, our hope, and in fact our promise from God is that is that that's going to change this summer. And I'm really excited to see what God's going to do to change that. Uh, and maybe many of you are preparing for, for that to change in your lives as well. Now many of us often fear that God is going to make you become friends with people that you don't even like. <laughs> he might. <laughs> but it's more likely that he's going to ask you to become friends with people that are already in the three worlds that you've heard me talk about, where you work, where you live, and the people with whom you do life, the, the spheres of relationship that you already have in your life spaces. Who might those people be? A neighbor, someone in the same apartment complex, uh, in the same dormitory, or someone who lives on your street or in your neighborhood. Parents of the friends of your kid in school, maybe another soccer or dance parent. Uh, maybe a classmate, someone that you're reconnecting with on Facebook. Someone at work, someone on your staff, person that you've befriended, maybe a server at a restaurant, the, the checker at the grocery store, the teller at the bank, the receptionist at your chiropractor or dentist or doctor's office, place where you get your oil changed, members of a club you join or an organization that you serve. Coming up to Susan Coleman Race for the Cure, this is home to Susan Coleman. I mean, it's, it's the world's largest cancer research organization in the world, and they have an annual race here, and maybe uh, you're going to serve a, in, in that capacity. 
we plan to as a church on the 12th of May, but maybe you're going to befriend somebody there in that organization, or maybe it's, it's, um, you know, with Southside Mission that we're contemplating, you know, the ways that we can join with them in their adopt a block or, or their home builders program, or maybe it's with Salvation Army or the Red Cross or some other organization. I love how Melissa's making friends with people at Roller Derby. That's awesome. Lamar, he's, he's coaching, um, Peyton's, uh, Little League baseball team meeting friends, making connections. I know Amy's making uh, uh, opportunities to meet other parents at classic co- classical conversations. And uh, Lee's going to have all kinds of opportunity. Where's Lee? Right here. He's going to have all kinds of opportunity because just this week he got promoted to be the principal at the, J- at the junior high in Morton. And what a, an incredible opportunity. Congratulations, by the way, Lee. We're proud of you, man. That's awesome. And uh, what an opportunity to be a man of influence. And, you know, building on the reputation that they've already got. I mean, and I could name like lots more of you too. Those were just four that kind of came to my mind. That, that it's more likely that people that were already in our orbit in those three worlds, right? Now, now there may be people sprinkled in there that you really don't like and don't want to become friends with. And that's where you got to ask God for more of that soil work. <laughs> because all people are created in the image of God and worthy of love. All people matter to God. And some of those people are going to be in your life, not for what you do to them, for what God does to you. But the point is, who are they going to be? Well, all these kinds of people, all these people that, 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 that to whom God guides us in their deep heart really uh, want to engage in things that ultimately matter, don't they? They want to know about God, and uh, they, they want someone with whom to process their attempts to cope with their own mortality and what happens after you die and their struggles with guilt and trying to figure out uh, their purpose and place in this life and their feelings of inadequacy and, and, and being a flop at raising kids and maybe a failed marriage or two, uh, their, their bad experiences at the hand of the church. I mean, they want somebody to find uh, a, a meaningful way to explore these things without fear of reprisal or judgment, and that's going to be you. A number of years ago at a neighborhood party, one of my neighbors, Scott, with whom Tina and I had become good friends with uh, Scott and Karen, uh, he was a, he's a brilliant professor uh, at the University of Illinois and internationally known in his field of study. Um, uh, he, de- he designed the tiles that go on the space shuttle. And um, he pulled me aside quietly at a neighborhood uh, party and in, in what I considered our first substantial heartfelt conversation, shared with me the struggle that he had in believing in God. He knew that I was a pastor. Uh, Ever since he was a teenager, and God failed to answer his prayer for the friend of his who had leukemia and died at age 17. Once I composed myself and got over the shock that he was actually opening up his deep heart to me, I told him I didn't have a clue like why God didn't answer his prayer. His wife later told my wife that me telling him that I didn't have a clue was the green light to him that it was safe to proceed in our relationship. And so what happened after that point is that exchange led to a growing friendship that was marked by a two-year-long series of weekly lunches on the campus close to his office that focused intently on his deep questions about God, life, and the Bible. He wanted to talk about the things of ultimate concern. Now, I wish that I was a hero and the story finished gloriously, but it doesn't, and I'm not. I'll just be candid that after that span of time, as quickly as those lunches started, they stopped without explanation. We remained cordial as neighbors without any reference to what had just happened in the previous two years. And uh, then he and his wife divorced, and he left the neighborhood. She kept the house. His wife, on the other hand, uh, on the other hand in that process, had begun attending the vineyard, and her and her children still are connected there to this day. 
But that relationship was a breakthrough for me in redefining evangelism as, as prioritizing friendships with unchurched people. Third action step I want to share with you this morning is as you build relationships, learn to listen. The Apostle James gives us this advice in his letter, James 1.19, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. You see, God gave us two ears and one mouth so we'd get the message. Listen twice as much as you talk. And one of the most powerful ways to express love uh, to an unbeliever is to genuinely listen to them. You see, if people in our world, our three worlds, sense that we want to quickly fix their problems, dispense advice, shove our view of the Bible down their throat, or quickly win the culture war, whether it's about immigration or health care or abortion or homosexuality or politics in the upcoming election or whatever, if we want to win that argument, then they, as they rightly should, should get angry and defensive. If, on the other hand, we want to just listen with non-judgmental acceptance and show respect for who they are and what they think and what they feel, uh, then then they'll get the drift. And when we do that, a bridge of trust gets built, a bridge of trust that we may later cross, and they'll share their deep heart and reveal their needs and spiritual openness, and then we will likewise have a chance to share our heart as well, as we've earned the right. Now, a couple of tips uh, in listening. One, just give full attention to the person talking. Be fully there. Don't be thinking only on what you're going to say when they stop talking. Because in that sense, many dialogues are actually monologues between deaf people. So be fully there and engage. Secondly, reflect what you're listening. Now, sociologists, people that are trained in this area, call this active listening. And you've probably received some of the training on active listening in school or, or at work. But just reflect what you're hearing. Things like, like this would help you. So let me see if I understand you correctly. Or, so the major concern that you have right now is, or it appears that, or, so help me understand. And here's the one that I like to practice a lot. So you are feeling blank because of blank. You are feeling blank because of blank. Now, this level of empathic, active listening will show people that you actually hear and understand them and will communicate love and respect in a way that nothing else does. Now, it may seem a little awkward and mechanical at first, kind of like riding a bike with training wheels, but what it will do is it will, it will communicate love that, that you actually hear and understand. And every, every one of us wants to be heard and understood, don't we? So you do to others as you would like them to do to you. Genuine, caring listeners are in short supply in our culture. We're just not very good at it. But when you practice, there's that one hour, 10 hours, 100 hours that we talked about last week. When you practice, you're going to find out that you're going to be amazed at how good you get at it. And and it's going to be like fertilizer that's going to catalyze those relationships. People are going to open up and disclose things to you that shock you. You'll learn about their fears and their struggles, their joys and their concerns. Just the other day at Target, I was buying a card, the elderly gal next to me. I said, hi, how are you? She goes, oh, fine. I said something like, well, it sounds to me like you're feeling frustrated because of something. 
I do what I tell you to do. And she said, exactly. And for the next five minutes, I heard all about how her married daughter just expects her to come over and babysit the kids at any time. And I'm like, whoa, I was unprepared for that at Target. I was just buying the card, thank you very much. But empathic listening is like a giant unseen magnet that will just suck the truth right out of people. It will, and I challenge you, encourage you to practice it this week because people will feel valued and heard and understood. Fourth action step. I'm going to wrap it up with this. As you build relationships, I'm encouraging you to ask sensitively timed questions. Sometimes they'll, uh, a question at the right time will be the, the very thing that expresses sensitivity and genuine concern. And this is especially true when you already have a growing relationship with people. You know, we don't want to be perceived as the CSI or FBI agent who's doing an interrogative interview, but we may want to ask a question at the right time uh, in a non-threatening way to I- initiate spiritual conversation, uh, to help people connect at the right place on the journey, to help us know where they're at, and allow the Holy Spirit to gauge where people are at in their uh, journey of relationship with Christ. So here are some of the uh, just illustrations of questions that you may be appropriate. So where are you at? On your spiritual journey. Well, if you could ask God for anything right now, what would you ask Him? Or can you help me understand your disappointment with God or the church? If someone were to ask you, what do you think a real Christian is like? How would you answer? Have you ever felt God's closeness to you in the past? Are you interested in spiritual things? What do you think is wrong with the church today? Or if you could ask God one question, what would it be? These things are just illustrative of the kinds of of questions that asked at the right moment, uh, not yes or no answers, but will put the other person in the driver's seat of the relationship and allow them to reveal as much or as little as they're comfortable with. And so active listening and sensitively timed questions will be like fertilizer that caused the garden of their heart to grow and your relationship to be strengthened. So friends, all around us are people that matter to God, Uh, people in whose lives God is writing a story. And as we prepare for a summer of fun, I want to encourage you to take genuine interest in their story, where they come from, where they're going, uh, who they love, who loves them, what they dream about, what their passions for life are, what gives them joy, what do they hope about, where it hurts and why. And you remember that you're a story in progress, too. And you're surrounded by people who are story in progress. And there may be occasions in a moment where your life stories intersect. And for that moment, you, 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 you both realize that life's taking a sudden, sudden, novel, and unexpected turn. And in the process, you could experience a greater dimension of joy than you've ever known as we discover that we're actually all a part of God's bigger story, bigger unfolding story of all of us discovering Christ and finding real life in Him. Some might call that fate, some might call it circumstance, happenstance, destiny, or God's sovereignty. I just like to think it's how he's designed life in the kingdom to work through everyday outreach by ordinary people. Lord, we're just so glad that you invited us into this process. And Lord, we're feeling really wholly inadequate and and totally like out of league, but but we know that you want to reach other people through the the influence of uh, of our lives, and so I pray that every person here that has that deep desire to to share what you've done in us through us to others that that you'd empower us today, embolden us, Lord, to be those vessels 
It's our earnest prayer, Lord, today in your name. And as we now offer you our gifts, Lord, through song and worship and pray for your anointing uh, in that and, and on the offering, we, we pray you receive these gifts for what they are, uh, tokens that we love you. In your name, amen.